0: Why did opium production in Afghanistan increase immediately after the US and NATO invaded 22 years ago? Will the Taliban returning to power and now once again destroying opium crops be good for curtailing the international drug trade or make it worse? Who was Ambassador Adolf Dubs, and how was his assassination connected with the origin of the 40-year war in Afghanistan? How are Zbigniew Brzezinski, the Trilateral Commission and the Safari Club mixed into the grand strategy of war and illegal drugs? This week on the Global Research Hour, following the 22nd anniversary of the launching of, of Operation Enduring Freedom and the longest war ever fought by the United States, we set our sights on some of the most dynamic elements of the war that are underexposed in mainstream press. In our first half hour, we have a conversation with journalist Max Perry about a two-year-old article he wrote linking the rise of deaths due to opioid addiction with the rise of opium production in Afghanistan and how there is a trend between illegal drugs and imperial U.S. conquest. Then in our second half hour. We speak with Jeremy Kozmurov, managing editor of Covert Action magazine, about how a U.S. ambassador to Afghanistan became the Franz Ferdinand of the 40-year-long war in Afghanistan. On this week's program, Anniversary of U.S.-NATO Invasion of Afghanistan, Graveyard of Empires, Birthplace of Modern Opium Tragedy. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of October 13th, 2023. The program is funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg. I'm your host, Michael Welch. The show seeks to provide listeners with access to analysis of some of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our shows are featured on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. We acknowledge that this program was produced on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Ojikri, Dene, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Metis Nation and the heart of the Metis Nation homeland. Settlers attained the land and resources from the indigenous communities who dwelled here through fraudulent treaties and promises, and we focus on paying back reparations so as to deal with our partners with respect, and not with the continuation of policies of colonialism and genocide. Now it's time for News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. Listeners should know that some of the articles may run against common messaging about sensitive subjects and are not all endorsed by this radio station. In 2019, the Global Commons Alliance was launched in Singapore by Rockefeller Philanthropy Advisors with the mission, quote, to mobilize citizens, companies, cities and countries to accelerate systems change and become better guardians of the global commons, unquote. Their strategic priorities are to change minds, actions, and systems in order to safeguard the global commons and, quote, regaining planetary stability, unquote. They are ready to act swiftly when an emergency is declared. By 2025, the true magnitude of the multifaceted transformations we need to safeguard the global commons will be well understood key actors will know what they need to do, where things are most urgent, and be taking action that sparks and sustains transformational change in order to protect the global commons. That comes from the article Declaration of a Planetary Emergency to Begin quote, the Long-Term Reduction of Global Population unquote, by Jacob Nordengard, posted October 11th, originally published on The Pharaoh's Chronicle, Jacob Nordengard, Ph.D. October 1st, 2023, international champion soprano, 25-year-old Patricia Chenekova, Slovak opera singer, lost her battle with breast cancer after being diagnosed in February 2022 at the age of 23. October 10th, 2023, Pearsall, WA Australia, 25-year-old Megan Lynch was diagnosed with stage 4 breast cancer that had spread to her lymph nodes and her lung. At the moment, she's responding to chemotherapy. October 5th, 2023, Florida Ridge, Florida. Jenny was diagnosed with stage 4 breast cancer in April 2023, which has spread to the bones Spine, hip, femur, pelvis. She also has recent bone fractures. That comes from the article Breast Cancer Stage 4, Very Young Age, Triple Negative, New Mothers, Features of COVID 19 mRNA Vaccine Turbo Cancer, 30 Cases, by Dr. William Macus, posted October 11th, originally published in COVID Intel. Turkey is a very good example of this. While the country is mostly Muslim, its political elites have always had the tendency to lean towards Israel, although they'd never admit it. Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan is extremely prone to accept any ideological amalgam that furthers his neo-Ottomanist ambitions. For instance, while he is officially an outspoken Islamist, he also pushes a very nationalistic agenda, such as the idea of pan-Turkism, which isn't always in line with Islamism and neo-Ottomanism. Erdogan and the Turkish elite on the whole have used this volatile ideological mix that overlaps in many ways, can also be very contradictory to expand Turkey's zone of power and interests. That comes from the article Erdogan, friend or foe of Netanyahu, on whose side is Turkey in latest Israel-Gaza escalation, by Drago Boznik, posted October 11th, originally published on Infobricks. The United States has been at war for all but 15 years in its 247-year history. Since 9-11, we've spent more than $8 trillion to wage wars abroad, including the lifetime price of health care for disabled veterans and interest on the national debt. The average American pays over $2,300 a year in taxes to support the military, half of which goes to military contractors. Even with America's military might spread thin, the war drums continue to sound as the Pentagon polices the rest of the world with counter-terror activities in 85 countries. The American empire, with its endless wars waged by US military service people who have been reduced to little more than guns for hire, outsourced stretched too thin and deployed to far-flung places to police the globe is approaching a breaking point. That comes from the article Guns for Hire, America's Crisis State Goes Global by John W. Whitehead and Nisha Whitehead posted October 11th, originally published on the Rutherford Institute. I dread the upcoming days. This might be our time to leave this world torn apart in a random Israeli airstrike. The next day, electricity, internet, and water are all cut off. I start to feel that, step by step, we're being cut off from the outside world until it doesn't exist. Israel wants to intentionally cause a blackout so that we can't report on the massacres it's committing in Gaza. That comes from the article, Palestine Letter, Israel is Imposing a Blackout on Gaza to Hide a Massacre by Tarek Hajaj. posted October 11th, originally published on MondoVice. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. This past Saturday, October 7th, marked the 22nd anniversary of the U.S. NATO forces invading Afghanistan in the name of getting their hands on Osama bin Laden, who they decided was responsible for the September 11th attacks. Operation Enduring Freedom, as it was called, became the start of what was called the War on Terrorism. The Taliban was expelled from all the major population centers, and a new government was installed under the U.S., which would prevent the Taliban from returning to power. Of course, after the longest war in U.S. history, exceeding the Vietnam War by six months, the Taliban eventually staged a broad offensive forcing the U.S. and its allies to withdraw. A major component of the conflict that was not addressed much in mainstream media was the rebounding of the illicit opium drug trade, once virtually eliminated in 2000-2001, then resurging to higher and higher levels. We will explore this aspect of the Afghan conflict in our discussion with Max Perry. Max Perry is an independent journalist and geopolitical analyst. His writing has appeared widely in alternative media. He's a frequent contributor to global research. In August of 2021, he wrote an article recounting how the drug trade has helped to serve the foreign interests of the United States and the CIA and was undoubtedly linked to the war in Afghanistan Mr Perry joins me now to explain the dynamics in more detail pleasure having you on the G- global research news hour max welcome
1: thank you michael thank you and uh, global research radio for having me on it's a pleasure
0: your article the war in Afghanistan the real crime of the century behind the opioid crisis points to the rise of victims of the opioid crisis in the US due to overdosing and linking that to the war in Afghanistan, especially following the near elimination in 2001. Uh, do you think restoring the crop, the opium crop to full production was a, a secret goal or, or a partial goal of the war, like getting control of oil was the secret intention of the war in Iraq in 2003?
1: Well, it certainly you know the fact that uh, the the Taliban had you know in the year preceding the 2001 U.S. invasion had uh, issued a successful ban, uh, much like the one they've uh, instituted since the U.S. drawdown. Um, it certainly makes one wonder uh, what they've been doing the last uh, you know during the 20-year occupation uh, during that time where they spent. Millions and millions of dollars on counter uh, narcotics efforts, and um, you know, ostensibly, were were fighting uh, uh, the opiate trade, the opioid trade, but um, uh, clearly, uh, it was lining the pockets of the the not just the Karzai government, but the Ashraf Ghani government as well. Later on, um, I mean, turning Afghanistan into a narco state. You know, was decades in the making for Washington strategists, uh, and so I think it's it's been dismaying for U.S. policymakers to see not only the the puppet government it had set up uh, uh, fall so rapidly two years ago upon the U.S. drawdown, and you know to see the Taliban subsequently retake power, which of course shocked the world after twenty years of U.S. occupation, but to see now the Taliban reinstating its opium ban. And successfully eradicating the industry, which had clearly, as I said, been lining the pockets of the so-called democratic government the U.S. was backing. You know, for two decades, the U.S. claimed it was the Taliban which was relying on poppy production. But uh, I think with with this ban, this subsequent ban since the drawdown, and then also, you know, in 2000 when Mullah Omar issued a fat law, uh, clearly that was all a lie. And, uh, you know, it's... Um, Whether or not it was the impetus, uh, the direct impetus for the U.S. invasion, I think that there were many other factors as well, but it's, you know, the U.S. really going all the way back to Operation Cyclone, uh, beginning in the Jimmy Carter administration, has been willing to work uh, hand-in-glove with uh, the uh, people involved with the drug trade, corrupt people involved with the drug trade, starting with the Mujahideen, Uh, back in 79 when the U.S. first sent arms to them to wage jihad against the Soviet-backed government. Um, So I don't know if it's so much a uh, direct reason for the U.S. invasion, so much as that they're willing to work with anyone that serves their geopolitical interests, regardless of whatever illicit industry uh, they're involved with. Um, I mean, all I can say is that uh, similarly in the... uh, in the Golden Triangle of Southeast Asia, where um, uh, opioid production uh, primarily was sourced, uh, that shifted um, to the Golden Crescent, uh, consisting of Afghanistan and neighboring Pakistan, uh, whose you know ISI they also back the Um So wherever foreign policy objectives, uh, wherever U.S. foreign policy objectives, seem to go, the drug trade uh, seems to follow. Mm-hmm. um so whether or not it was directly the the reasoning uh i can't say i, I all i know is you know going from from uh, southeast asia to uh latin america with uh obviously the Contras were very heavily involved in in cocaine smuggling the us was willing to turn a blind eye to that while uh cocaine came pouring into the us and you know like the opioid epidemic now uh the uh, American civilians uh, dealt with the consequences of that, with uh, uh, cocaine uh, pouring into U.S. inner cities, and you had the crack epidemic. I mean, now we have the opioid epidemic. So yeah. um, clearly wherever U.S. foreign policy goes, uh, the gl- global drug trade seems to follow. And,
0: um, yeah. Well, you know, wars, I mean, just to you know, weigh the whole role of of, of drugs in this war. I mean, wars can have, you know, be complex at times. I mean, maybe maintaining opium crops in order to support families who would be devastated without it uh, would make it more possible to stop the Taliban and and Al-Qaeda, and they may have seen it as a necessary evil to be endured in the short term. I mean, what... Yeah, you know, how, how can you definitively exclude that possibility from consideration?
1: Well, I mean, concurrent with the Afghan-Soviet war, as I said earlier, the U.S. in the late '70s and '80s, U.S. support for the Contras in Nicaragua were known to be heavily involved in cocaine smuggling, and uh, you know that had reverberating effects here with with the crack epidemic in the '80s, where you know the CIA was turning a blind eye to the The drugs pouring into the U.S. So, um, as I said, wherever U.S. imperialism focus shifts uh, from Latin America to Southeast Asia to the crossroads of South South and Central Asia, where Afghanistan Afghanistan lies, the uh, illicit drug market seems to go along with it. And uh, you know, this has been a an imperial Western imperial strategy going all the way back to you know when the Chinese were flooded with opium. I mean. That that's what in answer to your first question. I mean, uh, that was part of what sparked you know the Opium Wars. Famously, was that the the, the Qing Dynasty had was, had put a prohibition on uh, on opium, and and the British, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, started inundating China, uh, the, the the Chinese Empire with with opium in order to subdue them. And they had, much like Afghanistan does now, uh, you know, a massive, uh, massive uh, addiction problem. Um, so uh, that's been a Western strategy, uh, you know, going back since the 19th century, and it's been a blueprint of Western powers to subdue its colonial subjects that way. Uh, so whether or not the, um, you know, it, it certainly... I think the difference between now and 2001 is that, unlike uh, unlike then, the U.S. isn't really in a position to uh, you know reinvade Afghanistan because the Taliban has has uh, successfully banned the uh, the crop and is shifting towards wheat. Um, I think now you know U.S. hegemony, by all accounts, U.S. Uh, uh, global power is in decline, and they're not really in a position to do anything about. Uh, what the Taliban is is doing, and uh, a lot of studies, UN studies, show that um, given the the synthetic uh, opioid epidemic here in the U.S., that uh, a decline in heroin production, um, natural opiates, is going to only pour fuel on the fire of the synthetic opioid uh, problem here in the United States because its availability is going to be less. And you know, uh, people are going to turn toward uh, these, you know, synthetic opioids that are synthesized in a lab, as opposed to being derived from the, the sap from from poppy crops. So, mm-hmm. um, I, uh, there have been a lot of studies showing that uh, that, that problem could, is probably only going to worsen. Um, you know, because Afghanistan produces ninety percent of the world's heroin, um, so it seems like. Possibly in the next year or two, we could start to see the, the, the effects of that where I mean synthetic opioids are already on the rise where hundreds of thousands of Americans or tens of thousands of Americans are dying from them. Uh, so I think we could see that problem only worse with a decline in, in heroin. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, they, they say that the uh, the synthetic opioids that are uh, entering into the United States right now and it's just killing, uh, I mean a hundred thousand people every year. And uh, you know substances like, um, you know, fentanyl are responsible, and they say that it's mostly coming across the Mexican-U.S. border, and and sourced from China. Um, is this? I mean, is there some sort of a competition there with uh, the source of, of of where this is coming from, so that Afghanistan doesn't really matter, or uh, how, how? Well, I
1: think I think if you look at the overall narrative, I mean, even in popular culture today. The focus is all on, you know, uh, the Sackler family and Big Pharma. And, you know, there's even now a huge Netflix series uh, that's a dramatized version, not even a documentary. It's a, it's called Painkiller, starring Matthew Broderick. Uh, the, the focus has been to uh, really just focus on Big Pharma, which, of course, is responsible for, you know, uh, killing tens of thousands of Americans. I'm not denying that. Uh, And, you know, they were they colluded with the the FDA in getting, uh, you know, Oxycontin approved, even though they knew it was addictive. Um, But I think that the media and the U.S. government especially do not want Americans to connect the dots between uh, what took place in Afghanistan concurrently with the uh, 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 increase in use of of, uh, synthetic opioids, because. You know I mean I cite my article statistics showing that nearly half of all um, heroin users are also um, addicted to prescription opioid painkillers as well and you know the, if you watch mainstream media as you were saying the majority of it is said to come solely from Mexican cartels but that is not statistically possible based on the, the sheer user demand uh, and if you look at the amount of hectares, uh, uh, that are produced in in South America, uh, supposedly coming up through Mexico, it can't all be sourced from from Latin America. It has to also be. And if you if you look at where uh, you know up until at least recently, with the Taliban's ban on opium production, uh, most of it inevitably is being sourced from a country that the U.S. from uh, for the last up until 2021 was uh, occupying. And, um, the corrupt government in power, uh, for 20 years, um, uh, both lo- locally and at the national level, um, both in the, you know, these provinces that are rich in opium production and at the, the, up until, up, all the way up to the, the uh, presidency, um, they, they were, uh, very much figures we know, uh, from WikiLeaks cables, uh, were, deeply involved with the drug trade and, um, all of that is, goes back to, you know, that that leadership was, uh, the core of it came from, um, you know, groups like the, uh, the Northern Alliance and then all the way back to the Mujahideen were known to be involved with, uh, opium production, which, you know, up, up in, in the 1970s was, uh, relatively, uh, Small in comparison to by by the end of the eighties, when the Soviets withdrew, it, uh, as I said earlier, uh, opium pro- global opium production uh, its main source had shifted from the Golden Triangle, of Southeast Asia, to to uh, the Golden Crescent in, in Afghanistan and Pakistan. Hmm. Um, so I, I, I think that the the na- whole narrative that it's that that it's just coming from Mexico or or from Latin America and that you know, they also want to just keep the focus on, you know, incredibly wealthy families like the Sacklers who just get these, you know, these slaps on the wrist, uh, you know, in, in uh, and they get their, maybe might have their name taken off of uh, the wing of, uh, you know, like the Metropolitan Museum of Art here in New York City. They, have, they had a wing uh, named after them that was taken down. But that's the extent of the punishment that's ever going to be done to an immensely wealthy family like the Sacklers. It's a slap on the wrist. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they don't want Americans to connect the dots between, um, uh, uh, you know, disastrous uh, U.S. Adven- ed- uh, interventionism and and uh, its forays abroad, and these these things are going to that are directly felt here at home. Mm-hmm. And as I said earlier, it's it's ironic, but uh, while it will be, of course, a great thing for the Afghani people, to, you know where somewhere like one in every 10 people is addicted to opiates, um, obviously the Taliban banning it is going to have uh, tremendous uh, social improvements in that country. Uh, but ironically, it's probably going to, as I said, citing uh, uh, studies done by the U.N., that it's probably only going to worsen the synthetic opioid uh, epidemic here in the U.S. So if there's no link between, uh, you know, the... U.S. occupation of Afghanistan and the 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 skyrocketing opium production there that it helps facilitate, and, you know, this synthetic opioid epidemic we have here at home, how can that be, you know? Mm. Clearly, they're related, and I think that uh, that shows that.
0: Um, you know, you mentioned in, in the article you talked about the journalist Gary Webb, you know, and uh, the uh, author of the controversial Dark Alliance series in which he exposed the link between contra drug operations under CIA protection and, and crack ep- epidemic domestically and I, I kn- know that we we're looking at a bit of a time where he, he mysteriously you know he, he seemed to die of, uh, of, of suicide but uh, I, I'm wondering if, if you could maybe just sort of paint out a, a bit of a trajectory going into the future because there's this long history going back to the uh, 19th century the opium wars and then Going through '79 and the Iran Contra and, and so forth, uh, is 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 this tendency of, of being linked to the drug market? Is it is it like the, the individual consumer? Is there an addiction there that they they just can't get rid of? I'm sorry, say that
1: again.
0: Oh, I'm mean, I'm just wondering that like, given that the, is the the, the addiction uh, of U.S. foreign policy to the drug trader, this, this core between the drug trade and, uh, U.S. imperial designs, uh, is that going to continue almost as if an individual, indiv- an individual person is, is, uh, addicted to... Well, yeah, to... I mean, if
1: the U.S. is addicted to war and, you know, it helps fund its dirty wars, uh, against, um, any part of the global south that doesn't, uh, uh, that isn't client and, uh... It doesn't uh, serve its interests. Uh, it's willing to, to fund its dirty wars, uh, you know, linking up with uh, whether it's Ukrainian Nazis or far right paramilitaries that are involved in the drug trade or uh, these warlords in Afghanistan that are reliant on uh, poppy farming. They're willing to work with whoever they can to, to serve their geopolitical interests. Um, so, and, you know, they they call it the military-industrial complex for a reason, and uh, yeah, I think that the U.S. is um, you know it it's it, it's addicted to war, and uh, it's it's um, you know it continues to support uh, corrupt uh, uh, figures all over the uh, it's corrupt proxies all over the world. They're involved in in the drug trade as long as it as it serves its it's. Uh, its geopolitical
0: interest. Well, Max Perry, thank you so much for for joining me in this uh, conversation. Thanks thanks for contributing uh, to Global Research as well.
1: No, thank you very much for having me.
0: Max Perry. Max Perry is an independent journalist and geopolitical analyst and a frequent contributor to Global Research. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. This is Michael Welch for the Global Research News Hour. Returning to the 22nd anniversary of the US NATO invasion of Afghanistan in 2001, there was a history of the Islamic extremism that was actually rooted way back in 1979 with the Zbigniew Brzezinski of the Carter administration and the nefarious Operation Cyclone, which set the stage for the destruction of women's rights and and a lot of other progressive dimensions of the government. But what we didn't know was that there was a conflict within the U.S. government, which sparked the operation. Here to explain it in detail is Jeremy Kosmurov, Jeremy Kozmurov is managing editor of Covert Action magazine. He's the author of four books on U.S. foreign policy, including Obama's Unending Wars from Clarity Press in 2019 and The Russians Are Coming Again with John Marciano, uh, with from Monthly Review Press in 2018. He joins us now to, to bring some additional angles to the conflict within the Afghan government, which led to the 40-year war and had America's fingerprints all over it. Pleased to have you with us, uh, Jeremy. Uh, welcome to the Global Research News Hour.
2: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: Now, the rundown uh, that our listeners are already aware of is that uh, Jimmy Carter and Zbigniew Brzezinski, um, authoring, um, funding the Islamic Mujahideen to destabilize the reigning PDPA of Afghanistan and, and and create chaos for them. But your article highlights conflict within the US that Zbigniew Brzezinski essentially won. Uh, there was an ambassador to Afghanistan who fought in World War II and, and he seemed to be something of a peacemaker yet uh, his name was Adolf Dubs. Tell us about what he was doing that, that sets Zbigniew Brzezinski offside from him.
2: Sure, yeah. And this, uh, my article was drawn off a book published by Trine Day, uh, and the authors are Elizabeth Gould and uh, Fitzgerald, a husband and wife team. And they actually had worked uh, in Afghanistan as journalists in the 1980s. And I think they um, published some, uh, or presented some material on PBS, but then they were presenting, you know, critical narrative that pointed out that the Soviets weren't the aggressors really the way they were presented and they were basically kicked off the air uh, and then years later came out with this book that really tells the inside story as you point out of the ambassador Adolf Spike Dubbs who uh, I believe he had been a World War II veteran and he was you know committed to peace and, and his job and yeah we see a conflict between Brzezinski who's in the National Security Council and the CIA and Pentagon hardliners and at that time i think now the, a lot of hardliners are in the state department but at that time you had more liberal dovish elements um existing in the state department operating there but there, there was a conflict in the policy because dubs well i think his instructions because you know afghanistan had the sore revolution backed by the soviet union and the socialist government took uh took root In 1978, and they were instituting a lot of progressive uh, initiatives in Afghanistan, including promoting women's rights and land reform and uh, funding for education and health care. And the quality of life was really improving quite dramatically under their rule. Um, Now, the U.S. was obviously uncomfortable (laughs) with this kind of government, and this is a Cold War. But Dubs's policy was to cultivate alliance with Hafizullah Amin, and there were a series of uh, leaders uh, of the Saur Revolution. And Amin came in power, and Dubs met with him about fourteen times, and his job was to pry him away from the Soviet Union and push him to more of an independent course, but not to overthrow him, to to accept him as the leader. But to prod them away from the Soviets, they kind of envisioned maybe Afghanistan could evolve as like a Yugoslavia you know, under Tito, more independent socialist government. Uh, so that there was an agenda there, but uh, wanted to uh, induce the end of the Soviet Union, take aggressive actions against the Soviet Union, and use Afghanistan as a pawn. That was the Brzezinski clique, uh, the National Security Council, and the CIA. And they, um, you know, couldn't talk. I mean, Dubs, they wanted to overthrow the, the uh, Afghan government and they wanted to induce a Soviet invasion. So they were arming the most extreme hardline Islamists who would uh, create uh, chaos in the country and trying to overthrow the uh, Soviet Revolution and induce the Soviets to intervene. And that would be the Soviets Vietnam. And that would lead to the end of the Soviet Empire. And Brzezinski gloated uh, uh, when, after 10 years of war and the Soviet Union uh, uh, collapsed, and he said, you know, our policy in Afghanistan made the Soviets collapse. And, you know, they asked after 9-11 about Islamic extremism and Islamic terrorists. He's like, oh, who cares? We brought an end to the Soviet empire. Well, most of the world cared that they had ignited all these extreme Islamic jihadists and, and fanatics, and they were supporting the most extreme Islamic elements and that was again counter dubs' strategy he was committed to uh, preserving the soar revolution although again uh, trying to isolate it somewhat from the Soviets uh, forge a more independent yeah. Afghanistan so but you yeah, said but, that, yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: yeah but this basically this w- w- was it this setup that pr- was prin- not maybe the whole thing but was principally responsible for the Soviet Union breaking down would you say
2: well, it was a big factor. The strategy, which I think is the same strategy they're employing in Ukraine, and there's a lot of evidence for that, is to try and bog them down. you And so it was a costly affair uh, for the Soviets to devote a lot of their resources. And that's what they want to do in Ukraine now. They want to draw the Russian into a long conflict that will drain their economy, make them look bad, you know, cast them as the aggressor. When we know in both cases that they were provoked into it um so uh that was the ploy and i think it was a factor contributing to the undermining of the soviet union i mean i think there were really a lot of internal problem and crises uh irrespective of of u.s policy that led to uh the collapse of the soviet union but this certainly uh, helped and that's why you know brzezinski bragged about it and thought it was was such a great strategy he had crafted Uh, and he was unconcerned by the uh, deaths uh, in afghanistan you know, the 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 complete destabilization of afghanistan and terrible human costs for the country uh, as well as the rise of uh, islamic extremism didn't bother him yeah well
0: um you you mentioned the the, the fellow Adolf dubbs as you pointed out was he looked to be a, a major thorn in the side of uh of Zbigniew, Brzezinski. i mean I know that there were a lot of people i mean i from what I hear i mean Everybody, not just Carter, but everybody in the uh, administration, or at least in the cabinet, was a, a trilateral commission um, individual. Um, Adolph Dubs, I'm thinking, since he goes back to 1973, before the, the trilats took over, was he not a part of the, the, the trilateral commission, or uh, was there elements of him that... Uh, you know it, it, because he was the ambassador to afghanistan that's where the uh, the whole the, the whole schism starts to develop
2: um well from what i know, what was described in the book is that he uh, fought in the pacific war and that turned him more or less into a pacifist and that he was a proponent of nixon's détente policy with the soviets and an opponent of brzezinski's anti-soviet plots Uh, he had a background as a soviet expert i'm not sure and had served in the u.s embassy in moscow so i'm not sure i I don't think he had any connection with the trilateral commission most of you the cabinet officials in carter's administration carter came out of the trilateral commission and they put in carter specifically to try and reorient u.s military power after vietnam and Carter like promoted the uh, revolution in military affairs, or, you know the modernization of the U.S. military, uh, and you know shifting of certain strategic relationships that also reinvigorated the Cold War. Although Carter was less of a hardliner than the Reagan and the neoconservatives, who really pushed this extremely aggressive policy uh in Afghanistan and elsewhere to kind of take the war of the soviets where i think carter was a more moderate wing that was um you know was breaking with the nixon detente policy but was not quite at the level of the, the neoconservatives of igniting major wars uh and aggressively taking on the soviets yeah. so that's the difference you know dubs is is more of the moderate liberal wing uh of the state department and and the carter administration
0: Take us through Dubs's assassination and and why you think this looks like not not like the work of the Soviets, which was what was they, they were stating, but from the United States itself. What, what's
2: um, there's what, evidence from the crime because he was kidnapped. Yeah, these talks on with Amin and uh, you know Brzezinski didn't like that and and he was going you know hellbent on going forward with his uh, this aggressive strategy and then he was kidnapped one day uh, in 1979 uh, and he was taken to a hotel room and there was a hostage crisis Uh, you know he was taken hostage for a while and then I guess uh, some uh, Soviets stormed the room uh, or a uh, local police you know and, and there were some soviets that identified in a, uh maybe uh, across the street but i think the the manner in which he was shot indicated that it was important because the the official story and this was i guess used also for anti-soviet propaganda that oh he was killed by the soviets and the soviets were bent on going to war and this shows how evil and aggressive they are uh, and we're on the side of good so they really painted it like the Soviets. and there were some KGB officers I think, stationed near the hotel where they took him. Uh, but the golds uh, engaged in a, in a crime scene analysis and make clear that the forensics, it was impossible for those Soviet officers to have fired the shots that had killed them and that he was killed you know, in close range. Uh, there were numerous bullets. Uh, and uh, there were these Tajik, uh, you know, some of the um, elements that the CIA was recruiting against the secular socialist government were like minority groups, uh, either Islamic uh, elements or um, certain minority groups uh, that were hostile to the socialist government in Afghanistan. And one was the Tajiks. And I think the book said that they, the CIA had, were using Tajiks uh, to destabilize China because you know a lot of people don't understand that Afghanistan, one reason it's so important strategically for the United States and why they want to control it is because it could be used as a base to destabilize China. I mean, it borders on China. And the Uyghur, you know, they were recruiting Uyghur, brought some into Afghanistan, trained them in Afghanistan, uh, Uyghur Islamists, Islamicized them, radicalized them, and were training them to destabilize China in the Xinjiang province. Uh, so they used some of these elements, these minority elements, as part of this operation. Uh, and th- they got killed. You know, they, they, uh, the evidence points to them being the assassins, and then all three were killed. You know, they just used them. They probably set them up uh, in a way I, probably they didn't even know who they were supposed to kill. Uh, and, you know, their goal was they hated the socialist government of Afghanistan. So, so yeah, they used these, these Tajik uh, elements, and the crime scene was all covered up, and it was set up, again, to make it look like the Soviets had done it, but... Uh, a clear side analysis by the Goulds makes clear that um, this was a, a CIA Brzezinski operation. It couldn't have been as impossible that the Soviets were behind this. And this, yeah, really was a turning point in the history that ushered in 40 years of conflict for Afghanistan um, that only ended a you know, short time ago. And, and that devastated the whole country, which was used as basically a pawn uh, by the United States for its larger geopolitical ambitions.
0: Yeah, well, you did mention uh, in, in in the article that uh, he, there was a he, he actually was partially wet, like from for some reasons it wasn't obvious from the the scene that uh, he should have that wetness, and uh, that that's also another aspect of it, right? like he, like he wasn't shot there, but somewhere else.
2: Yeah, I, I have to, uh, exactly. There are all kinds of oddities that suggest that the whole crime scene was staged and the yeah, forensic evidence made it clear that it's impossible that those Soviets uh, uh, who were carrying out some surveillance operations could have been the assassins and the ghouls identified these uh, Tajik killers who appeared to have been recruits on uh, the pay of the CIA and there was a huge cover-up of the crime scene, manipulation of the crime scene afterwards
0: talk about the safari club because it was independent of the trilateral commission i believe but uh, but working in the same direction or doing some things in common uh, for you know but or in parallel but you know were their plans being derailed by dubs as well as uh as, as by zbigniew and his trilateral commission
2: I think so, yeah. The Safari Club was like a group of uh, global elites. Uh, there were some American, like Henry Kissinger was part of it. There were some CIA operatives, uh, people like Theodore Shackley and, and James J. Angleton. When, uh, when When Carter came in, because Carter cut some of the budget of the CIA, you know, after the church committee hearing, there was a lot of suspicion about the CIA and the public was aghast by a lot of the criminal thing they had done that was exposed in the church committee so there was really public demand to cut the powers of the cia and limit its covert operations so carter cut the budget significantly and a lot of cia officers you know retired but then they went and and established private security uh companies and they really continued to work uh, to overthrow foreign governments and uh you know uh, through shadowy you know banking uh networks and private off the book funding operations uh that culminated in the Iran-Contra scandal, and they're in some ways still driving U.S. foreign policy, and they're part of this clique with Kissinger. Um, and these are, you know, and then there's some like very wealthy global people uh, from other foreign countries, uh, you know, Europeans with a lineage and like, uh, you know, old monarchies in Europe, uh, and they're very, you know, committed to preserving the colonial order in Africa, for instance and they're extremely anti-communist, so uh, they're pushing for a a very aggressive foreign policy uh, toward the Soviets, and Brzezinski is in league with them uh, and some of these private networks that uh, assist and provide financing or muscle for covert operations, so I think yeah, Brzezinski is working in cohorts with them to finance the Islamic Mujahideen and the Extreme right wing elements in Afghanistan and to carry out criminal operations like this one uh, so they can win this, what is essentially, I guess, a bureaucratic battle uh, or you know, internal government battle between the neoconservative faction and this more liberal moderate faction that want, that is willing to accommodate the Afghan revolution by trying to uh, splinter its leadership from direct relations with the Soviet Union. And it took a murder to uh, ensure the success of the hardline strategy and, and to draw the Soviets in to their Vietnam.
0: Mm-hmm. Of course, another aspect of it was that the drug trade, uh, like, really expanded. You know, they use using more and more illicit drug. I'm not saying that it started in that at that time frame, but it, it seemed to be notched up uh, a couple of octane levels and it, and it stayed there. So now that is a permanent. Presence that continues to be permanent fixture of uh, of U.S. uh, foreign policy, and then of course, as you go on with Reagan and Bush, and you had the whole uh, Iran Contra situation, and all all of these things that seem to, I mean, it's it's almost as if the uh, the 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 foreign policy itself is just as addicted to to drugs to these drugs as uh, any other uh, as a human being would be. yeah, but uh, yeah, can you maybe maybe talk a little bit about how that uh, that foreign policy and and the the illicit drug trade seem to be you know connected in some way. Uh, again, starting with the, the Zbigniew's um, tenure in office.
2: Absolutely, yeah. And I should before I get into this question, it should be noted that Brzezinski has. His own family as a lineage going back to his grandfather, he was involved in the Polish Russian you know they were fanatical uh, opponents of the Russian Revolution and his, uh, his grandfather, yeah was a fought in the Russo Polish war of 1920, 1921 when the US was actually yeah, supporting Poland to try and at first they had invaded Russia uh, to try and overthrow the Bolshevik government and were aligned with elements of the old Czar regime. And then they tried to support Poland in the war against the Bolsheviks. Uh, So his family lineage uh, is such that he's uh, extremely uh, anti-Soviet, anti-communist, and really Russophobic, anti-Russian. And it continues today because his son is an ambassador to Poland, which is running the arms pipelines uh, into Ukraine, and is fanatical in support for the uh, anti-Russian efforts today. Now, with related to narcotic production, yeah, according to uh, former Washington Post reporter Selig Harrison, one of Dub's assignments as ambassador was to coordinate a multinational U- and UN effort to control narcotics production and trafficking in Afghanistan. Uh, and that's, they. but they want, you know, the Safari Club and these CIA shadow operatives who form what Joseph Trento called a private CIA. They're basically working... Uh, to carry out CIA operations, possibly without authorization of the White House or US government, and they're on their own carrying, and they have their own means of funding these kind of operations, including with some of their wealthy supporters in Europe and through criminal activity. And the drug trade in Afghanistan is a lucrative uh, trade. So I think their goal was to control the drug trade. Uh, and he was known for throwing acid in the face of women. You know, he was a real hardliner, uh, who, a mis- misogynist, who uh, if they weren't fully covered, he would throw acid in their faces when he was a college student. Uh, so, and you know, they said they valued him because he would take the war of the Soviets into Central Asia. I mean, he was a real Yahoo uh extremist and he he control he was like a drug warlord who ran oversaw you know heroin refineries uh so that was a, a lucrative source of revenue and means of financing clandestine operations uh targeting the soviet union you know somewhere in pakistan a lot of the army of the mujahideen rebels was carried out covertly in pakistan uh, and some of the drug trade was operating through there, so uh, yeah. So the, uh, controlling the drug trade was crucial to that whole operation, and and to the funding of the Mujahideen to destabilize Afghanistan. So Dubs was a major bearer in that respect too, because he was working with the UN to control the drug and, and regulate the drug trade and and prohibit uh, massive drug trafficking. Mm.
0: Well, you haunted us with the, the possibility that uh, if, if it hadn't been for the assassination of Dubs and then Spigniew winning and then going through Operation Cyclone and all of the things that stopped spun them out, I mean, the world might look not just Afghanistan, but the world might look very different today. I mean, you just ex- explain a little bit about what you saw as, as being a, a possible alternative to you know, the, the parallel universe, if you will, to that, uh, that uh, nightmare scenario.
2: Absolutely, yeah. This seems to be a major uh, turning point in history uh, that had Dubs uh, lived and been able to carry out his program, the Soar Revolution may have survived. If he was successful in his goals, yeah, it might have evolved into a more ind- you know, uh, a kind of you know, Titoist regime, uh, which was a very successful regime when it lasted in, in Yugoslavia. Uh, it charted an independent course in the Cold War. It brought a lot of development. Yugoslavia its economy was flourishing in those years there were good social services so Afghanistan yeah might have evolved into a very successful country with good living standards with improved status for women uh, good health uh, quality of life indicators instead the country was thrust into it was totally destabilized uh, and uh, thrust into 40 years of war that uh, totally devastated the country, and it fueled the rise of Islamic extremism. I mean, it's a it's a terrible turning point for Afghans and for the whole world because uh, that spawned the rise of uh, Islamic terrorism and led to the war on terror that has killed you know who knows how many million people died and how much destruction has been caused in the war on terror. And it's fueled more and more vicious cycles of violence and political extremism, and new offshoots like ISIS, and new wars like Syria, uh, the, the mess going on in Israel and Palestine. So, uh, in a way, uh, history might have turned out much, much better. Um, so, this is really a tragic, uh, a tragic event and tragic moment in history. Um, and often these assassinations, yeah, have huge cataclysmic effects in the short and long term. You know, you can look at the Kennedy assassination in the United States and the nightmare it's unleashed on American society. The Rabin assassination in Israel has uh, fueled the rise of the far right. Look what's going on there uh, today. So. Um, these are just some examples. Yeah, political. Uh, you know, you can go back to World War One with the assassination of the Archduke Ferdinand. Uh, so, um, you know, unfortunately, these kinds of assassinations yeah have huge ripple effects. And these are very nefarious people behind these assassinations. They, you know, their uh, character is clear. And when the, these kind of evil people take over society, you have a cataclysm for for everybody. And I think we can try and learn from the history, and try and stand up against evil people uh, in power and, and faction, like the neo, you know the, the hardline neoconservatives who will use the most devious methods to try and achieve their their devious ends. And we need to mobilize people against that. Thanks so much for joining us,
0: uh, Jeremy. It's been a pleasure uh, having you on again.
2: My pleasure. Yeah, very important discussion.
0: We've been speaking to Jeremy Kazmarov. He's managing editor of Covert Action magazine, and we reached him in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Some closing notes before we depart this topic. There's been talk of women's rights in Afghanistan arriving with the fall of the Taliban. But on International Women's Day, March 8, 2002, the Revolutionary Association of Women of Afghanistan wrote one fundamentalist band cannot be fought by siding with and supporting another. In its war on the Taliban and the Al-Qaeda, the U.S. has taken the Northern Alliance into service through wooing and arming certain infamous warlords. By so doing, the U.S. is in fact abetting the worst enemies of our people and is continuing the same tyrannical policy against the people and the destiny of Afghanistan which successive US administrations adopted during the past two decades. The Taliban and the Al-Qaeda cannot be eradicated through military and financial might alone. War on the Taliban and the Al-Qaeda is not only a war on the military and financial interests on financial fronts, it is a war on the ideological front too. Until such time as mindsets and thoughts characteristic of the Taliban and Osama and company remain, it is inevitable that we shall witness their trademark barbarism erupt yet once again, be it in Afghanistan or in any other part of the world. Rawa has repeatedly and consistently asserted that under the prevailing circumstances, no power except the Afghan people themselves can or will succor them against fundamentalism, and there is no precedent in history wherein a foreign nation or nations who have themselves been patrons and abettors of agents of bondage and fundamentalist affliction have granted liberty to a nation held in thrall by those very same agents. And in an October 7, 2021 update, they wrote the following statements... The intellectuals who worshipped the US and coined the term of "Afghanistan turning into another Japan" while riding the massive wave of propaganda accused us of negativity and an organisation that accepts none, stuck in the past, and so on. But after twenty years of betrayal and murder by the US, most of Rawa's critics suddenly turned into the critics of the US and its policies when they were orphaned with the departure of the U.S. forces and had to flee the country in the humiliation in the disastrous evacuation through Kabul airport. That's it for this edition. Next week we will be addressing the big news on the planet at the moment, the asymmetric war on Gaza by Israel. Join us in seven days. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, a program funded by the Centre for Research on Globalisation and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Inenu, Ojikri, Dene, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis Nation homeland. The show airs on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States and is available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, please email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I've been your host, Michael Welch. Thanks once again for joining us.